0: Mike Duffy called them the boys in short pants. And they're both boys and girls because I've seen them. Women and men. Hello, this is episode 46 of the Boys in Short Pants, the 47th episode. I'm Rock Carboneau, and with me is Etienne Ranville, as usual.
1: Am I, like, am I supposed to say no, something? You say, you say,
0: like, hello or something. Yes. You're not a. You're, God damn it. Okay. I am here. And with us as well this week, a special guest, straight from Parliament Hill is uh, Peter Farrell, who is the legislative assistant to Don Davies, the NDP's health critic, and uh, say hello.
2: Hello. Pleasure Pleasure to be here, Laurent.
0: And we're going to uh, have a discussion today. Both Etienne, as I'm sure regular listeners will know, Etienne's been following the cannabis file very closely over the last year, Uh, and Peter as well in his capacity as as, the assistant to the health critic, Um, went through the whole committee process in House of Commons, uh, the sort of legislative scrutiny side of it. So... that discussion will be led more by them uh so let's get right into it uh so pot the c45 was announced on maundy thursday last year so we're about a year and a week out from its original announcement and it's been passed by both houses of parliament uh not quite no i I should yes i i got that wrong it's been passed by at least one house of parliament And uh, on track to pass the 2nd, though we will see. Committees are reporting in very soon. So can you guys give us a sense of how that's gone from the beginning? Like, what was the process? Kind of how did that go? How did
1: it play out in committee and in other places? I'll I'll cede the floor. So just, just to kick it off, I think... So the Liberals introduced the legislation, as you said, this time last year. I don't remember when it got to second reading com- uh, yeah sorry it passed second reading just before the summer correct me if i'm wrong and then study started in early september before the house was back there was two weeks of basically um compressed hearings every day before the week uh, before the house returned in september where you heard from like 40 some odd witnesses is that right
2: i think it, it was closer to 100 actually closer to 100 <laughs> was, uh, okay yeah, even, yeah. even
1: more and yeah, that was super intensive. And then it—I uh, guess there was clause by clause where the NDP, among others, I guess the Conservatives actually didn't uh, suggest any amendments.
2: No, they suggested none. The NDP proposed 38 amendments, as well as a handful proposed by Elizabeth May, and I believe it was one proposed by the Bloc Québécois.
1: And how many amendments passed in total? There was three or four.
2: Yeah, the, there were some technical amendments put forward by the Liberals, so I, I I apologize but I couldn't give you an exact number, but the most significant were that we were able to convince the Liberals to come on board uh, to legalize edibles and concentrates. We asked for it immediately at the same time as legalizing cannabis flower. Uh, they've decided to do it within a year, but originally it would have been not at all, so that was a very positive step. Uh, the second major amendment that the Liberals were willing to agree to was Uh, to eliminate the the ridiculous 100-centimetre plant height limit that the bill originally imposed. Uh, We were able to get uh, uh, one of the top uh, cannabis botanists in the country, who's an expert out of UBC, to come to the committee. Uh, And he basically explained that his impression was that the 100-centimetre plant height limit had to do with the fact that that's about the average height of fences across the country, and that it had to do with concealing plants outdoors. (laughs) Uh, because the science just didn't bear it out. If it was about plant yield, because uh, the the smaller bushier indica type plants actually tend to have higher yield than the taller uh, Scragglier sativa type plants, uh, which. Uh, we were able to reveal that the the cabinet hadn't actually known uh, when when they crafted that 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 clause of the legislation. So,
1: did the hundred centimeter limit come uh, from? I Have to apologize. It's the first day of good
0: weather in Ottawa in some time, so the hogs are out in force today. <laughs> did the hundred centimeter limit come
1: from the McClellan report?
2: It did. So the the task force uh, report. Uh, was, was very thorough and it drew heavily on the experience there, jurisdiction. In mind, with the states that have legalized, uh, they're still operating in a context where federally cannabis is prohibited in the United States. Yeah. Yeah. And with Attorney General Jeff Session who has, Sessions, who has been threatening uh, for his entire mandate to, to crack down, even within states uh, where by referendum they have legalized, uh, they. they they still have to be very cautious uh, to control out-of-state uh, diversion um, and and uh, to to basically say maintain subtle cultivation and distribution to not raise the ire yeah. of the federal government. So so in that case, it did make sense in in the context of having fences to cover outdoor cultivation. In the context of illegal market in Canada, it made absolutely no sense. I think the best quote we heard was from uh, uh, criminal defense attorney Michael Spratt, who said that uh, the criminal law. is it's a very blunt instrument for dealing with social problems. It's an even blunter instrument for dealing with gardening yes. problems. <laughs> yes, <I> know, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's very
0: good. Friend of the show. Friend of the show, Michael Spratt. Um, so... Th- in, in terms of committee, like, how did you feel that that process went? Because there was that very accelerated period of before the house came back. And then I think there was just while wow, the house was sitting kind of more normal schedule. But what was your impression of how that process went in terms of the dynamics of the committee? Uh, you mentioned you got a couple of amendments passed, but a lot more that you did not get passed. So how did you feel that that kind of went?
2: Yeah, so our, our fear when the, uh, the the sort of marathon committee session was proposed by the Liberals and that it would happen in sort of the dead of summer before the, the House came back was that it was an attempt to rush it through uh, really the only public process uh, through the House uh, where Canadians could, could share their input and our, our sense was that it was being rushed to limit that input. Uh, and And it seemed that 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 was borne out by our experience in committee. So uh, there were a number of of areas that we were able to identify throughout the the week and and a half of testimony uh, where we didn't have sufficient uh, uh, public input. One of the most important was that that, uh, the the Liberals' principal justification for bringing in this legislation is to protect uh, or to reduce youth consumption of cannabis uh, and and to improve uh, youth education around uh, cannabis consumption. And we didn't hear from any young people, and right. so the NDP put forward a motion uh, to hear from young people, to hear from uh, craft cannabis producers, to hear from the producers of edibles, who we didn't hear from. And the Liberals voted down that motion, uh, and their justification was that that we had to uh, review the bill on an accelerated uh, time frame uh, so that it could be passed in time to meet their July one deadline. And we we met the uh, the the we met the schedule that the Liberals had proposed that the government had proposed. And surprise, surprise, we're still going to run right past that July 1 deadline. (laughs) To
1: to defend the government here a little bit, I I think the July 1 deadline is a bit of a myth. And I think they've always been pretty firm on July 2018. Um, And then somehow that was interpreted as July 1 in media or or somewhere else. So the July July deadline has been at issue. And now it's looking like August, maybe early September. But in terms of liberal priorities, I'd note that your office has been... On the same side and like a lot of legalization advocates have been very critical of your office and of the conservatives because they share the same point on delaying the legislation for further consultation as opposed to passing it for summer and then making amendments and tweaking the bill sort of as you go afterwards which is the liberals preferred approach so there's sort of the team that's saying and it's sort of unusual to see the conservatives and ndp united on this um, although likely for very different reasons Um, saying it's better to delay the legislation. The Liberals are saying it's better to get it through now and then tweak it.
2: Yeah, I'd argue that that's a bit of a misrepresentation of the New Democrats' position. Uh, Since 1971, after the LaDain Commission, the New Democrats have been absolutely clear that the criminalization of cannabis imposes more harm uh, than it, it reduces. Uh, and that the criminalization of, of cannabis possession and, and petty use uh, needs to end uh, as soon as possible. And we've been calling for that since this government was elected. And I, I'd, I'd point out that, that it, it's somewhat hypocritical that the response we've gotten from, from Trudeau uh, has been that the law is the law until the law is passed, and it must be obeyed until the new law is passed, when he himself has admitted that, that as a member of parliament that, that he committed the crime of petty possession. And so... And so we we see a situation where the law applies one way uh, to ordinary people and another way to the prime minister of the country, and I, I think I make the point that, that the greatest disappointment I think the New Democrats have had and probably the most tragic missed opportunity is that this bill really does fail to address the stigmatization, criminalization, and, and prohibitionist approach that that. Uh, has defined our, our, our policy towards cannabis for nearly a century. So we would would expect that, that the people most harmed by the status quo, vulnerable people, so indigenous people, young people, racialized community, the poor, would be the highest priority uh, to for, for the government to address the negative consequences yeah. of the law. And what we've seen is no path towards pardons uh, has been publicly announced by the government. The New Democrats put forward an amendment uh, to 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 fast-track pardons, and that was voted down by the government, uh, no, no movement on, on, uh, on the continued arrest. There have been 55,000 of them in 2016 alone, so tens of thousands of Canadians that continue to be prosecuted, continue to get records, and no path to a pardon. So, um, I think one of the legacies of this bill will, will be that it principally acts to legalize a nascent industry and to create a new uh, cannabis capitalist class. Uh, rather than to actually address the the negative impacts that that have historically yeah. affected the most vulnerable in our society. when
0: you see the sort of like jumping into the the cannabis industry of people like was it a former Fan, Julian Fantino, the former Veterans Affairs Minister? Julian
1: um, Fantino, uh, many significant liberals. Yeah, Bill. Did Bill Blair? Or was no, it, was Bill, it no it Blair Bill Blair was the liberal appointment in the yeah. United States. There's the recent example of uh, former. John Boehner? Yeah, John Boehner. I was trying to remember his position. John Boehner. I mean, take your pick. Um, When you have... I mean, cannabis, no matter how you cut it, the industry is huge. Yeah. And there are very, very few instances in history where you have a... What's essentially a 20-some-odd billion-dollar industry pop up overnight. Yeah. Well,
0: actually, it'd be interesting to see how the... Aboli- like the end of prohibition worked in the U.S. I, actually, it'd be interesting to see like what the sort of legal framework was there, because that's the only comparable large-scale example of like the overnight creation of a large market. Though of course there, it you know never really went into abeyance. But I suppose it's the same thing for cannabis here and and in the U.S. for that matter.
1: I, I think um, one of the different things, just fairly substantively, not knowing much about the end of prohibition, in the United States. Is that just alcohol is generally made by smaller producers. Sure. And in a, I, I would be willing to argue, substantively less regulated way than the current cannabis yeah. uh, market exists under the ACMPR. Um, whereas a lot of the cannabis companies are billion dollar. I mean, mm-hmm. I think we have almost 10 to over a billion dollars in valuation. Wow. Um, and that's going to grow and. You know, this industry is moving a lot of things, like a lot of different players in this industry are moving. There's a lot of acquisitions and mergers and all sorts of things going on. So yeah. it's it's becoming very much a snowball. Yeah. And this is one of the problems with delaying uh, that the liberals have sort of set up for themselves is when you've set this June or July 2018 deadline. Um, and you have all the provinces have their own balls rolling and their own legislation. And for instance, the LCBO has their cannabis stores Uh, renting out spaces and developing storefronts for an anticipated midsummer legalization yeah it's really hard to stop that and to say actually let's put a six-month pause on that tweak the legislation more and maybe come out with something a little better that everyone can agree on when you have so many other things on the go
0: yeah it's kind of indiana jones like running away from the big rock rolling towards him like it's a it's that rock is getting some momentum so it, it, it is tough uh i think there's a there's a lot of money on the line like people are making investment decisions and uh, you know purchasing decisions and renting storefronts like
1: it's uh there's a lot kind of on the go towards that sort of projected utilization Immen- timeline immensely so so let me ask you this so the bill comes out of committee um there's report stage and third reading and then it goes to the senate how closely do you follow the legislation after it sort of leaves your hands?
2: Sure. So we, we've we've certainly been keeping an eye on, on the bill as, as it passes through the Senate. Uh, I think uh, it drew quite a bit of attention as, as there was the, the question mark raised in the media as to whether the bill would, would in fact pass second reading and all the questions around what would become of the legislation if it were in fact defeated. Uh, as a New Democrat, it was actually a very interesting conversation for me to listen into because our, our position has been very clear that we stand for the abolishment of the Senate. And as m- myself and and uh, a lot of uh, folks around the country who are interested in, in this particular legislation tuned in, uh, I, I think it gave everyone a pretty good perspective into why New Democrats hold that position, <laughs> to be perfectly honest. Uh, the absurd... Uh, suggestions that had no basis in any evidence-based analysis of the bill were were, were repeated as fact. I think there were more than one senator uh, who who uh, repeated the the, the 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 strange myth that that because. Uh, 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 young people, I think, defined as 12 to, to 18. 12 and
1: under are not criminalized. Well, it wouldn't be it criminalized. It, yeah. Well,
2: Or or that up to 5 grams wouldn't be criminalized uh, for, for teens would mean that it would be perfectly fine to roll a joint on your desk you'll, in a high school You'll walk in, class in the classroom
1: and all the kids will have 5 grams of weed on their desk. Yeah,
2: oh, it's yeah. like, yeah.
0: oh, that's yeah, so stupid. <laughs> but, and there was, of course, but, and I, I know we've mentioned this, but it's so funny. Denise Batters saying that the... Logo that's going to be on cannabis is like a health warning, which is made to look like a stop sign Instead is supposed to look like the team Canada Jersey and thus encourage kids to smoke more pot Which was just like I think really the crowning (laughs) jewel of like terrible conservative senator comments on this Well,
2: and it brings me back to the absurdity of fast-tracking rushing this bill without giving it a thorough examination Through the House of Commons committee, which is the only elected committee that gives scrutiny to this bill and then giving much more time to the senate uh yeah. under the the assumption that this is a house of sober second thought yes. that will give better analysis than the house when you actually listen to the quality of that yeah. analysis
0: i mean it is definitely sober i don't think anyone can reproach them <laughs> for for that but uh perhaps the value is uh, not so
1: good so let me push back on that a little bit because it is easy to take and uh take issue with you know the various misstatements yeah. or statements of senators the worst of it is, is the Senate really unique compared to the House in terms of having people talk about things they have no idea?
2: Well, I I guess I I could say, no, there's some blame to go around. Uh, So I could say that the government's approach, and I've been listening into the uh, the Liberal Convention a bit, and the response to this idea, well, it's like you have discussion about everything but implement nothing, is that, well, we can talk about anything, and we hear from a bunch of different points of view, but in the end, we make decisions based on the evidence. And I'd say that that it's not just the Senate that's ignoring the evidence or particular members of the Senate ignoring the evidence. It's the government's approach in, 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 in many fundamental ways is irrational in the way it went about this bill uh, to the point where many people are saying it's not really legalization it's just making cannabis less illegal and so you you have provisions that that are still that the government has maintained in the bill though the NDP had proposed amendments to rectify this but so there's a 30 gram possession limit which means someone with 29 grams of cannabis in their pocket isn't a criminal, but someone with 31 grams is and can face up to five years in prison. Uh, edibles- edible. scale's
0: well calibrated. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah. Well, yeah, be careful and, and don't hold for a friend. Uh, the, the, the prison sentences attached to the offences and in, in, there are a litany of new offences more offences in this bill than, than there were previously yeah I, th- I
0: think we were talking about this at one point you had mentioned that there are basically now more cannabis related crimes on the books than there used to be uh, yeah, yeah 100%. Which is which is like I understand why that would be I, I get it because you are creating a sort of regulatory apparatus around new, yeah, but, but, new but, but it's industry, important that it. but it is weird well it,
2: that is not just a regulatory apparatus and that I think is an important point here is that it, it's, it's criminal code offences yeah, yeah. attached to this litany of, of, of new uh, new crimes, uh, and so there, there's possession, uh, uh, as well as say, someone with five plants is a criminal. An 18 year old who passes a joint to a 17 year old is a criminal, and and we attach 14 year criminal penalties to this, yes. which we don't do for tobacco. So you give a carton of smokes to a 14 year old, you're not as, going to as prison. As Laurent
1: often does. On <laughs> the, That's those Saturday I, I mean, you,
2: you give a bottle of liquor to a 16 year old, you're not going to prison. Uh, And and these are are, are potentially deadly products. You you could kill yourself with a bottle of liquor. Uh, A young person will hook themselves on tobacco and it could give them cancer and and, and kill that person. And so so why we wouldn't have a consistent approach to alcohol, tobacco, and cannabis, Uh, makes no sense. And frankly, it it seems to send the message that that alcohol and tobacco are less harmful than cannabis. Well, it
0: buys into the whole stigma thing. Which which brings
2: me back to the irrationality of this, that that there's no evidence that justifies that approach.
0: Can I make a point about the, the committee questions that Etienne was originally talking about there? Is that I think people in the House of Commons asking questions about things they don't understand happens. I think that's fine, though, in a sense, because they are elected. And if their electors feel that they are... Too stupid to be entrusted as their representative they have the right to vote for someone else senators unfortunately you do not have that option you are stuck with them uh and no one voted for them so I think, like, if you're going to make it a house of sober second thought, actually make sure that it is that, rather than a house of, like, partisan fools who don't know what they're talking
1: about how on most you, issues. How and... do you do that, though? So let's, let's dive into, I guess, off, off track of cannabis for a minute. This is, this is like, our thing. <laughs> like, Where we go off track on <laughs> I, think, I think there is something to be said about the Senate not being a body. Okay, let's concede that we're not going to abolish the Senate for a minute, just to have this conversation. sure. sure. Um, that working within the confines of the Senate that we have, in terms of, because this issue comes up, uh, appointing new senators. Yes, okay. Do you appoint society's technocrats? I'm going st- to stop you right there. Or do you, right you appoint the hot dog guy at Bank and Laurier? I actually think they should have appointed the hot dog guy. I am fully in favor of the <laughs> I, I would, the have, hot been, dog I would guy. have been a highly in favor of Senator Hot Dog, but...
0: Um, <laughs> No, I, I think, like, that's a fair question, but I think, like, that's a false dichotomy. Like, I, I think absolutely we should appoint both of those classes of people. What I The type of person I think we should not appoint is enormous partisan hacks who are only there because of their partisan loyalties. Or, it, as Stephen Harper was fond of doing, people who lost common seats or elections and then were appointed to the Senate as a sort of gag gift or a consolation prize, so I, gag, yeah. I, I mean, it kind of is. Uh, but like I think that is precisely the wrong type of person to sit in the Senate, and that's who most of these like really outrageous comments about the cannabis legalization process have come from. Well, to,
2: oh, go ahead. Well, I think it's also a question of, in a 21st century democracy, where does an unelected body draw its legitimacy, yeah. if it possibly can? Now, I, as a new Democrat, don't think there can be a, a legitimate uh, unelected body uh, in, in Parliament. Uh, in a 21st century democracy. But, I, I but, was
1: really hoping you would caveat that with Parliament. I was going to be like, the court! The court! <laughs> but,
2: but, but, but I'd say that the, the Liberal government seems to justify it by saying the quality of our appointment determ- appointments determines the legitimacy yeah, of Yeah, which is body. weird. Uh, yeah. and, and I'd argue that the cannabis example is a great one to show that that uh, that's not really borne out by the actions of, of, of the Senate uh my view is that, that even if you could somehow quantify uh that that that, that it was got it was that bills received better analysis in the senate rather than the house there's still a democratic imperative yeah. that, that 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 requires that, that that unelected people don't have the authority to be yeah. elected
0: and end. i think when you talk about courts i think court like you know judicial review is a a concept that i think is like worth thinking about not accepting uncritically but i think it's easier to make the case for an unelected body that sort of considers the legality or, you know, sort of the principle of the laws in conformity with other laws um, in a sort of dispassionate and as a political process as they can manage as human beings embedded in a political society, I think I can see the case for the concept of judicial review much more than I can for the concept of unelected legislators who make law right i think that that's a fundamentally just dis, fundamental sure. distinction yeah. in the roles that is really
1: critical there no hundred no, percent. I, so, I wouldn't disagree with
0: that let's circle back around to cannabis um i think that that takes us to so we, we've done we talked about the commons process is there anything else you want to note about the, the process through the house of commons just that you uh you observed or participated in
2: sure i mean it's it's a little off track on on the legislation and c45 itself but it, another uh say aspect of this where uh, I think you could call it a missed opportunity was, was the chance to actually have a very thoughtful approach to our medicinal cannabis regulations. So to give a bit of context, the Conservative government, uh, their their cannabis regulations were struck down in federal court in 2016 in Allard v. Canada and the, uh, the, the Liberals brought in what they called a temporary regime. Uh, that that would change with the, uh, the the legalization of recreational cannabis. Now they've they've failed to do that, and they've actually uh, created new access issues uh, in the process. So. Uh, Liberal Finance Minister Bill Morneau announced that he would place an excise tax on recreational cannabis as well as uh, medicinal cannabis. Hmm. Now excise taxes traditionally work as sin taxes to, right. to depress demand uh, for alcohol, tobacco and now cannabis, but in the context of therapeutic use it makes absolutely no sense. A patient should have access to as much medicinal right. cannabis as they need and the courts have consistently ruled that way. Yeah. Um, so,
1: let, let's actually talk about that one um, for a minute because I think it's really interesting. I So just to preface this, because I'm going to argue a little bit of the devil's advocate here, uh, I, I am supportive of there being no excise tax on uh, cannabis. But the reason there on, is... On medicinal. On medicinal cannabis, yeah, yes. Right on, on all cannabis. <laughs> are, and on my Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, yes. On medicinal cannabis. So the current regime... You talked about the... Uh, the medical regime, the conservative medical regime being struck down by the courts. Uh, And the Allard decision, the Allard decision was one of a series of decisions. The medical regime in Canada was constructed entirely based on Supreme Court cases, basically. I think there was four or five that basically led to the regime that we have today. Um, And so it's sort of been uh, 30 years in the making. I think the original... Uh, growing of cannabis in Canada for the government started in like 1990s or something like that and then there have been subsequent Supreme Court changes that have shifted the regime but getting back to uh, the government's position on excise tax on cannabis the reason or the way they justify this is because cannabis does not have a DIN a drug identifying number and so it is different than all other prescriptions that a pharmacist makes and it is in a different sort of regulatory zone than every other medicine to the point where doctors don't prescribe cannabis. They administer... They they authorize. They authorize cannabis. Mm. They give you a cannabis authorization rather than a prescription because of sort of the way the cannabis regime in Canada has developed. And so in order to qualify for tax-free status, you have to have a drug identifying number, and finance has thus far been unwilling to cave on that principle. Okay, but why don't they just give... Cannabis
2: a Drug Identifier. And sorry, if I could just interject that. So I think there are two different issues at play. So there's there's the issue of the the prescribing versus authorization, uh, which has made it difficult for most cannabis uh, patients to get insurance coverage because there's no DIN number. Um, But then there's the the issue of zero rating uh, medicinal cannabis so that it would be tax exempt the way that all other medications are, are zero rated so they're tax exempt. But it's not just medications that have a DIN that are, that are zero rated for a tax exemption. If you, if you look in the Excise Tax Act, Uh, human sperm is is zero rated even though it's illegal to sell it commercially actually i Uh,
0: think there is a uh, there there actually is a private members bill going forward
2: about allowing you to sell
1: bodily fluids yes yeah Yeah. (laughs) something along those lines free market baby
2: Woo! (laughs) economic (laughs) action
1: (laughs) (laughs) so uh, you mentioned sperm which we can't sell is there a better example is there examples of sort of medicine things that are zero-rated?
2: I, I believe there are also devices. It's, it's actually a pretty long list, so I, I couldn't tell you off the top of my head. Uh, so, so there are a lot of complications uh, just in, in terms of the, the say, chemical composition. For technical reasons, it's been difficult to, to get a DIN for, for cannabis, although there are some cannabis products that have a DIN, and there are some ongoing trials around uh, medicinal cannabis for PTSD, among a variety of other uses. So uh, the task force report, uh, the McClellan report, uh, encouraged the government and took this this question very seriously, and encouraged the government uh, to, uh, to 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 uh, facilitate uh, the approval of cannabis and cannabis products through through the normal um, uh, medical trial process, and if. Uh, it wouldn't be possible to ensure proper access through such a process to explore other avenues uh, but, but the, the McClellan report was very very concerned around maintaining uh, adequate access to medicinal cannabis for therapeutic uses mm. and, and I'd point out this is an, another example where I think the McClellan report uh, transferred uh, an American recommendation a little bit uh, out of context to Canada where there were issues in I believe it was the state of Colorado where they, when they originally went to a recreation market medicinal was much uh, less expensive because it it wasn't taxed but there wasn't good uh, control around uh, around the authorization yeah
0: so I, i grew up in washington state and i go back there periodically to go see friends and family and I was struck by how comically easy it is to get what is called the the green card, uh, somewhat tongue-in-cheek there, which is the authorization essentially for medicinal cannabis, and people just get it and then get cheaper drugs. Yeah, well,
2: (laughs) why I would argue that that the great tragic missed opportunity is that, as as you've identified, that that, that the regulatory system we have in place now for medicinal cannabis is the product of court rulings to which uh, the government has responded generally with the most narrow uh, interpretation that they possibly could have. And so what we have is really a patchwork where no one comprehensively envisioned what an adequate or, or workable, sustainable medicinal cannabis regime would be in the long run. So I, I think absolutely we need to have strong controls in place. And it's important that people be having uh, conversations with, with their doctor or a medical professional in terms of their therapeutic use of of cannabis. And, and we don't get there, I think, by, yeah. by, by throwing up... Uh, yeah, yeah additional barriers. So I have a
0: clarifying question before, before tan goes off. Fine. Um, uh, <laughs> so is the reason that it doesn't have a drug identifying number because it hasn't gone through the sort of standard trials that uh, a, another drug would be expected to go through in the sort of uh, public health approval p- process? Part of
2: it's also just that, the cannabis uh, is, is a complex substance and mm-hmm. so there, uh, there's actually a lot of variation from strain to strain right, in terms of the chemical sense. composition and I guess the when approval you're... would be for each uh, chemical component okay. of if, the plant. If you yeah, have
1: cause... isolated THC Yeah. In yeah, a ca- like, if you were to do like a pill of straight straight THC, yeah, that would probably likely be easier than a yeah. lot of cannabis that, makes that is used that is a mix between CBD, THC, and like thirty other cannabinoids. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Okay, that makes a ton of sense. I mean, that's just in the same way that most medications tend to be like one isolated molecule, and then you're you have a clinical trial on the effects of that, and then that gets approved. But if you have you know 30 different things in one pill
1: or you know one, and, one
0: toke as the case may be
1: and it's not well understood what yeah the right ratio is okay. and how you want to balance these things and what even necessarily the active okay. cannabinoids that you want in a given strength sure. like there's so many so, questions so about it. essentially
0: as it stands right now is it basically that <clears> cannabis <throat> broadly is seen to have widely recognized but not completely thoroughly understood medical benefits and because of that it's sort of holding up that process and also the multiplicity of different strains and all this kind of stuff is kind of like slowing the process that would normally happen for sort of run-of-the-mill medications.
2: I think that's a fair okay. way to explain. Because
0: yeah. this, this is all new to me. This is actually the first I've heard of this and it's really interesting. So I just wanted to make sure I understood that correctly.
1: So let me walk, that, walk our conversation back a little bit to the uh, your your example in Colorado of different uh tax rates between medical and recreational and the pbo report actually lays this out pretty clearly it says that because of a difference in tax rate i think it's like a 15 point difference don't don't quote me on that um that in the first year of legalization the majority of consumption actually occurred in the lower taxed medical market yeah and this uh is interesting and this has basically been a lot of the rationale for the government i think Keeping uh, an excise tax on it is to not create a big disparity between yeah. medical and recreational cannabis, to not create incentives yeah. for people to go into. Yeah. Well,
0: it's exactly the same incentive structure you have with the black market, too. Is yeah. that you have to kind of like keep a tax that is like reasonable so that you see a return on sort of public, you know, people participating in the public system, but not putting it so high that people are gonna
1: just run to the black market so the government has studied like there's a report out from i think public safety canada did it on the elasticity of pricing around cannabis to help determine their excise tax and you know inform some of their decision making around this but the absolute irony here is that when you're talking about making disparities between cannabis uh, medical and recreational cannabis the number one area i think where these disparities are going to exist is going to be quality of life in terms of using it in terms of provincial regulations. Yeah. So the government, the federal government has handed off shit tons of decision-making uh, authorities to provincial governments who are now building different models for yeah. medical users versus recreational users with medical users being more permissive. Yeah. So for instance, in Ontario, you're going to be able to smoke medical cannabis wherever, basically wherever you want. Outdoors, sort of, there, there are you know more restrictions than that you but can't like blow it in kindergartners faces no and you brought you balls. likely can't you know do it in uh commercial properties and things like that but for if sure. you're if you're walking down the street you'll be able to smoke medical cannabis you're you're applying a drug or uh a medicine and so this contrasts poorly to uh regimes where recreational users will then face 500 dollars fines for doing that yeah and so this incentive that we were talking about existing in Colorado between the two markets exists in spades in the Canadian system because of provincial regulatory differences between... Yeah. medical and recreational cannabis
2: but but if i could point out and i think that this is has sort of been at the core, the core of a lot of court rulings as well it's that it, it's not patient's fault that the federal government and, and provincial governments in, in in this example have failed to to bring about an appropriate uh regime for them and so if the argument is that we don't have sufficient checks to prevent people from fraudulently using the, the medicinal cannabis yeah. uh, regime that's, that's, that, on that's not that, on patients yeah. that's that's on the uh, on the governance yeah. um and, and so i I think you're right to identify that the patchwork uh, regulatory and legal patchwork that, that we've created between uh, provincial and territorial jurisdictions is uh, is is going to create a, a lot of legal confusion uh, I think it's important to point out because I think a lot of people don't understand this but uh, the provisions of the federal bill actually allow uh, uh, provinces to derogate from from these sort of basic freedoms that, that people think they're getting from bill c45 so a province could lower the possession Uh, From 30 grand
1: no province has
2: but they're free to do so. They're free to restrict growing uh, within uh, properties, which I believe the province of Quebec yeah. has indicated its intention to do. Uh, and so we're creating a situation where uh, uh, Canadians may be put in the position of, of of breaking the law unintentionally, simply because the the, the, the patchwork yeah. is so complex that they don't know what the rules are in their given jurisdiction.
0: And speaking of patchworks, Etan, this uh, this I know is the critical question: Are you going to be able to transport marijuana from one jurisdiction to another? <sighs>
1: Um. As of right now, so you're you're of course referencing the Como decision. Como, just so you know. It's Como. The,
0: the, no, never mind. Carry on. Just Acadian
1: French people don't pronounce it that way. Carry on.
0: This is a losing. This is a losing battle. <laughs> too, with a tian.
1: too bad. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the coma decision so what does that mean for the transportation of cannabis across borders having read through a lot of the provincial uh, legislation it doesn't strike me that there's anything there yet that prevents I, I haven't seen anything in terms of transportation and I don't think it's patterns. mentioned
0: it, I don't think it's mentioned as one of the like reserved uh, classes of commodity or service in the agreement on internal trade, either. Yes. Yeah.
1: I, I would note that cannabis culture Unlike was, an, was an intervener <laughs> uh, in the Como case, um, and I guess we should say to anyone who hasn't been paying attention to the Supreme Court rulings that the Como case uh, was basically quashed um he, he lost and the supreme court upheld the status quo and a lot of people were wondering what the impact of this on cannabis is and it's basically status quo you'll be able to bring it across you're still subject to personal possession limits yeah um but where this had more interesting implications was to the uh provincial retail monopolies that are being set up mm-hmm. and to sort of the non-tariff barriers that are going to be established by provinces saying because you're seeing provinces play favorites with licensed producers that operate out of their own province. Yeah, For instance, Quebec gave its biggest um, supply agreement to Hydropothecary, which is based in Gatineau, and sort of token ones to others. A lot of the, <laughs> so a, to speak. <laughs> a lot of the Atlantic provinces have sort of, um, when uh, announcing deals, have also announced that licensed producers are going to move production facilities yeah. or labs to their province. So it's becoming very much that economic... Quid pro quo there. Yeah. Um, but what it is, is it's establishing markets where the government is going to be in charge and they're going to be able to limit people from other provinces' access to their market because they're not producing yeah. economic benefits for their citizens. So, one other question, too, is uh, in the US, it's been actually a big problem for the sort of
0: legal cannabis industry or the sort of gray area of cannabis industry because, as we, as we think we all know, it's f- illegal by federal law. Yes, to possess, grow, consume, whatever. Uh, but not illegal in some states because there's a different split in criminal law in the U.S. than in Canada. But what that's led to is a lot of trouble with access to capital and especially access to banks. They've been, had like, legal cannabis, so to speak, in the U.S., as far as it goes, has had a lot of difficulties accessing banking services because no banks want to touch their money because they'll have it frozen uh, by the like federal authorities, so while we are a party to sort of that international treaty uh, that prohibits uh, you know the legalization of cannabis, and while we're sort of integrated in this international financial market, especially with you know adjacent to the U.S., which has a very prohibitionist attitude on the whole, at least in the federal government right now. Uh, What does that really mean in terms of how investment will work, how people will be able to access international financial services, like whether people will be able to like investment from abroad? Is there
1: any? If only we had a few senators who went to the United States to dig up the details (laughs) on exactly this topic. Well, tell me about it. Um, So, I mean, when you read press releases from uh, licensed producers... It's sort of interesting, though. A lot of them will have a disclaimer at the top that says "not for distribution in uh, or circulation in the United States." Interesting. Um, there are sensitivity, like by no means are the financial markets my strong suit. There are sensitivities around listing and what uh, organizations are listing, uh, licensed producers, um, because of any tie into it, any tie into the American federal system or American systems that are federally regulated, rather. Draw scrutiny, and there is a document that maybe you remember this, the name of it, but it was essentially the Attorney General under Obama had uh, released an opinion that talked about basically a blind eye approach to cannabis yeah. regulation in the United States, and Jeff Sessions repealed that letter, uh, just as California was legalizing a few months ago, and that created a lot of doubt and a lot of uncertainty into the nascent cannabis markets in the United States. Because cannabis is a big uh, industry, you rightfully hinted at Colorado, where when Colorado legalized they had no access to banking, they had no access to ATMs, they had no access to, or not ATMs, (laughs) uh, Interact, and no access to Visa. They were entirely cash-based businesses, and to make it worse, the model uh, had the requirement that you grew uh, what you sold on site. And so you were a cash-only business with a grow op in the back. Oh boy. Um, and this led to a lot of problems. You're seeing you're seeing a lot of these problems paralleled in the gray market/slash black market of uh, dispensaries today, where they are cash-only businesses for for the most part, and there's a lot of cash on scene, and people are robbing them and holding them up, and they're not reporting the thefts because they're effectively illegal, um, and so that's problematic. That's why regulation is very useful here.
2: Yeah, I, I haven't heard the same concerns because Canada will be. Uh, legalized throughout the entire country. the the greater concern, I think, uh, in in terms of sort of economic disruption uh, that they, we heard again and again and again uh, throughout the the testimony at committee was uh, uh, around the the human human mobility to the United States uh, mm-hmm. after legalization. Yeah, that's a good point. So we, we had put the question to Ralph Goodell and and failed to get a good uh, good response uh, to say what do you do July one or whenever legalization yeah. happens you drive to the border you've consumed a legal product you don't want to lie to the border guard yeah uh, what do you do he
0: more or less told people to lie to the border guard well i he, think it's like everything he got
2: caught in this contradiction yeah. where he said well don't lie to the border guard and there are consequences to your decision but, I mean, the the uh, StatsCan estimates that 5 million Canadians smoked cannabis in 2016. Uh, if, if the numbers post-legalization resemble that, which it seems likely they will, uh, we're talking about millions of Canadians who may or may not be able to access the United States if they answer the border guard honestly
0: yeah which they will ask routinely I think in yeah and, this, and and the
2: fact that we're in, in the midst of a, a, a renegotiation of NAFTA because uh, yeah. the question came up well America's a sovereign country you can't tell them who they can or can't accept and you say well well that's true uh, but but perhaps uh, in discussions uh, around thinning the border uh, we, we should be seized with this question of what will happen to Canadian citizens uh, after we make the democratic sovereign decision to legalize <clears> cannabis <throat>
1: So, yes, rightfully so. I alluded to uh, a group of conservative centers who, as uh, as part of their committee study, they took it upon themselves to go to the United States to meet just to be, sessions. To measure all the stop signs in D.C. To, in to, to basically ask him this question, because I, I think it is a very good and very important question, and one that the government hasn't really tipped their hand on yet. They have basically said, be truthful and... Don't worry about it, we're in in conversations, we don't expect it'll be too problematic. When it comes to, like, I'm not fearing the worst case scenario, I'm not fearing that border guards will start asking and then, because it's not in the best interest of border guards. Alright Cheech and Chong, get in the hole. To to start detaining everyone and giving people lifetime bans. I, I really don't think that'll be the case. Like... I imagine it's sort of a comp, like, this doesn't exist for everyone who comes from the Netherlands to the United States. But, I, I, but they're like, oh, Dutch passport. Ooh, have you ever smoked cannabis? No, get out of here. Or, yes, get in, rather.
2: But I, I think that may be ascribing a bit too much sort of rational self-interest to the way that the, that the border guard has conducted itself in, in the American example. Yeah. So we, we heard a, a, an anecdote uh, from uh, one of our witnesses who came from the state of Colorado uh, who who told a story about uh, a young woman who uh, had a partner who lived in, in the state of Colorado uh, and she lived abroad and came to visit him. Uh, and so. Uh, she had smoked cannabis legally in the state of Colorado and admitted to this the next time she tried to get into the country and was banned uh, for being truthful about her her quote-unquote legal cannabis use in the States. So uh, I think given the the stakes of our relationship with the United States, and we hear about it every day in the news, uh, Ralph Goodale telling us, "Don't worry about it. Uh, it's probably not, not not yeah. a good enough assurance." Yeah.
1: No, I, I completely agree. It with is that. a pretty
0: serious. I mean, and also, like, I'm sorry, but the American border cops are perhaps the worst kind of cop. CBP. Yeah. Um, like they are the most power trippy, like hard assed, unbelievable nitwits. Uh, so I'm now banned from the U.S. forever. Oh, uh, yeah, that... you're, you're an American citizen, too. I no, actually, that. yeah, that's true. They can't ban me uh, <laughs> as much as they'd like to. But, uh, yeah. And you
1: can't denounce on either.
0: Uh, unfortunately not, because then the IRS will so hound me to the end of my days. Sort of, uh, what are the the hounds that pursue you everywhere? Bloodhounds? Uh, Bloodhounds. <laughs> I don't know. Well, yes, actually. I meant, I meant more, um... <laughs> oh, no, like, myth- mythically. Yeah, sort of like a hellhound, to. I guess, okay. yeah.
1: Uh, so let, let's bridge from cannabis very quickly because there are a lot of other things going, interesting things going on in the healthcare portfolio, or not the healthcare portfolio, in uh, HESA, which is the Health Committee. Um, the most recent one, perhaps, was the press. Uh, was it this week? Was It, it was this week. Yep. Thursday, Wednesday, Thursday got postponed because of weather. Cream, yes, yeah. um, and so it was the um, Medicare report, basically. Uh, well, the PharmaCare far Sorry, PharmaCare, farm- 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 yeah. yes. Nice
2: one. <laughs> yeah, so this had uh, had been uh, two years of, of committee work in the making. Uh, shortly after the the committee was formed, after the, the Parliament was elected, uh, Don Davies, the NDP uh, health critic, put forward a motion, uh, which received unanimous support from all parties on the committee to look uh, at uh, or to study the implementation of of universal pharmacare in Canada. And so the committee heard from a uh, hundred witnesses, received thirty. Uh, uh, written briefs, uh, and the evidence was was overwhelming, uh, and and was overwhelming uh, in saying that that uh, universal single payer pharmacare uh, is is the best model in terms of uh, economic uh, equity and and health outcomes. Um, it, it was uh, interesting that, that uh, the New Democrats, Liberals, and Conservatives were able to stand together uh, in and present a, a report with more or less united, uh, multi-partisan recommendations around a universal single, single-payer single system, particularly in light of the fact that uh, with Budget 2018, the Finance Minister Bill Morneau announced his, his intentions to launch yet another study uh, on pharmacare. And I point out we've had now... Uh, royal commissions, parliamentary committees, uh, peer-reviewed studies, national forum on health dating back to the 1940s that, that have recommended universal single-payer pharmacare. So the value of uh, of another study uh, is, is questionable in my mind given that the PBO has been clear that the opportunity costs of waiting a year are 4.2 billion dollars in wasted spending, millions of Canadians continue to lack access to essential uh, necessary uh, prescription drugs. Um, and and the second thing is that the day after the budget bill <laughs> yes. one out came out to the economic club of canada and so said, dumb. well everyone in in this room of very wealthy individuals is probably pretty happy with their drug insurance so we we don't need a universal program we just need to to fill the gaps and and the evidence was equally overwhelming at the health committee that a fill the gaps approach uh will not work uh uh it, it it tends to produce the, the highest costs because it allows private insurers to unload all the bad risks onto employers and governments uh it, it's it's a it's a model similar to to the the, the mixed system that the yeah. quebec currently has in place where they have uh, some of the, the highest co-payments yeah. uh in, in in the country
0: it's a bit of a socialized risk privatized profit kind of approach well yeah exactly and,
2: and and i on. point out that that Uh, Of of the the, the overwhelming evidence we heard in favor of universal single-payer pharmacare, the only groups we heard advocating uh, for the model preferred by uh, Mr. Morneau are the insurers and the drug companies who stand to lose if we transition to uh, a a universal single-payer system. Because to remember that every dollar we save in reduced drug costs uh, is a dollar out of the pocket of of, uh, big pharma. Yeah. Um, and I mean, they're they're getting a pretty sweet deal off of Canadians now, where we pay the second highest drug prices in the world, second only to the United States. Yeah. Uh, every country with a universal health care system except yeah. Canada. Uh, provides uh, access to to pharmaceuticals and pays a lot less. Yeah. Into it.
0: So I think part of the reason that we have such high prices, is, of course, we sort of in the in the gravity well of the U.S., which never helps with anything, but also that the Patent Medicine Price Review Board, uh, sort of their pegged countries that they have to sort of maintain a ratio to, or they've sort of picked the higher end of like our comparable countries.
1: Well, that's what. The liberals are in the midst of reviewing their uh, PMPRB uh, review changes, proposed changes, whatever, whatever, and that's set to take effect. January 1st, 2019 is when some of the changes around the countries, uh, comparator countries I believe they're called, um, comes into effect. Okay. Um, So that was actually... Uh, an interesting announcement by the Liberals, and I think it's one that didn't go very far in terms of media slash public consciousness. It's
0: pretty weedsy for most Ottawa news media yeah. to get well, a grip on. Well, and I
2: think the point is as well is that I mean, and this goes back to saying what Liberals do with, with half measures, what they can do by quarters or, yeah. <laughs> or not at all. It, 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 is that you? Yeah, we the way that we regulate drug prices right now is 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 it's is terrible and that's yeah. part of the reason why we have such such high drug prices relative to the uh, every other industrialized country but, but the, Save the United States. Yeah, but but the, the principal reason why we pay such high drug prices is, is the fragmented nature of Canadian purchasing. Yeah. So you have multiple programs that are public within provinces, but then you have hundreds of, of formularies for private insurers across the country. And, and private insurers are, are very bad at controlling costs because they don't have the, the say, moral authority to be able to, to have a disciplined formulary that's based uh, on, on evidence-based prescribing. And so generally... Uh, Private insurers will have what's called an open open formulary, where whatever is prescribed uh, is paid for, uh, and and the way that, that money keeps turning through the system, and the the way that all the incentives go, is is. To, to prescribe as much as possible. So we have this perverse situation in Canada where 10 to 20% of the population consistently can't afford access to, to prescription drugs, and, and other sections of the country are, are being pre, uh, over-prescribed to, or uh, or prescribed inappropriately to. Yeah. And so uh, one of the other benefits of a national pharmacare program is that you could bring in uh, systems for, for uh, pr- uh, to aid prescribing for physicians and healthcare providers so that we can improve the quality of of prescribing decisions and and this would help avert problems like we've seen with the opioid crisis where industry pressure and lobbying uh played a significant role in in uh in in uh the overprescribing uh and inappropriate prescribing of, of opioid opioid medication.
0: Yeah, well there was that big exposé on like uh how a pharma company brought, like, just an absurd amount of pills to, like, a small town in West Virginia and was able to, like, sell all of them because <laughs> it's just this, like, absurd net. Like, the U.S., sometimes you're just like, how is this country functional? Like, when you read stories of, like, how... But, like, obviously, we're not as bad, but, yeah, it's like there is a lot of... Like well, and I'd say at, political least, economy at least to the with credit
2: of, of, of the United States is that uh, they've taken uh, much more aggressive action in the case of the opioid crisis against, against the, the drug manufacturers and distributors. Mm-hmm. So there was uh, a criminal uh, 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 findings against uh, 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 Purdue Pharma. Uh, over half a billion dollars in, in settlement. Uh, ongoing, uh, I think over a hundred counties and municipalities and uh, states have launched uh, uh, civil action. Uh, there's uh, a joint investigation among 41 states uh, pursuing a uh, uh, criminal investigation as well as the, the Federal State Department. Whereas in Canada, uh, there's, there's been no uh, government-led action uh to hold the 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 opioid manufacturers to account uh there's been a privately initiated class action lawsuit the settlement was only 20 million dollars with two million dollars going to governments. to put that in some perspective i I believe it was from 2011 to 2016 provincial governments spent over half a billion dollars on uh, medications to treat uh, substance use disorder and addiction alone
1: so it's like let me put my mr monopoly hat on here for a minute and that's a question that I always find interesting. And you're, you you got the monocle, too? <laughs> yes. Does mm-hmm. you know, like Mr. Peanut, and does Mr. Monopoly
0: also have a monocle?
1: I, I think they both do. I think yeah. both the esteemed Mr. Peanut, Mr. peanut and Mr. Monopoly. Is Mr. That,
0: peanut so. like the alternate universe, Mr. Monopoly, <laughs> in like a peanut universe where people are peanut? In it? the legume universe, <laughs> yes. Mr. Peanut
1: is king. Um, in terms of a tax cut to businesses, I, I think is occasionally, you'll, you'll see a frame like this, so the idea is that when you do universal pharmacare, that employers no longer need to pay for uh, employer-based pharma coverage. Do we have a sense of what it costs employers to provide pharma coverage? Like an idea of how much in savings that gives to anywhere from small businesses, your Tim Hortons that offers pharma to their $14 or $15 an hour minimum wage employee to sure. multinationals?
2: Yeah, so the, uh, the the parliamentary budget officer's uh, uh, fiscal analysis of, of a pharmacare program uh, did touch on this. So in, in the terms of reference, the committee had asked for both the cost of, of premiums paid by employers as well as the cost of the drugs purchased by uh, private drug plans. Uh, the pbo was only able to get the the, the figures representing the, the the amount spent on the drugs by private plans uh so there there would be the additional say a uh, profit that the private insurers get from uh from from charging premiums on top of the the cost of the drugs themselves but even using those numbers uh the pbo was a, uh, able to use some some very straightforward math and i'm just trying to recall it off the top of my head but it was looking at 2015 to 2016 numbers and and said that overall, Canadians spent about $28 billion on on, uh, pharmaceuticals. And of that, using the Quebec formulary, which is one of the the broadest of of any in the country, um, uh, the PBO found that $24 billion of that 28 would have been covered under a National Pharmacare plan. And had there been a National Pharmacare plan, we would have spent $20 billion rather than $24 billion on that same basket of drugs. So it worked out to $4.2 billion worth of savings. And then the PBO also found that uh, governments, provincial and federal spend combined about $12 billion uh, on pharmaceuticals in that year. Uh, the private sector spent uh, about $9 billion and individuals uh, spent, uh, I think, about three and a half to $4 billion out of pocket. Uh, and so given that, um, it, it's fairly simple math to just decide how you want to distribute the savings. Uh, the, the NDP supplementary pharmacare report uh, uh, sketched out uh, a, a scenario where uh, provincial governments wouldn't spend an extra penny but would reap the long-term savings of uh, reduced cost-related non-adherence from people not being able to access medication, getting sick, or presenting to the healthcare system. Uh, Uh, Individuals would have their out-of-pocket costs eliminated completely, which would amount to about $3.6 billion in savings. Uh, And the federal government uh, could generate revenue from the private sector to pay for their entire contribution to a National Pharmacare program. And after that uh, tax or levy, uh, the private sector would still be $600 million uh, better off. Uh, with, because they no longer have to cover the cost of drugs. So it, it's sort of the definition of a Pareto-efficient outcome, where everyone's better off and, and no one's made worse off. Now, you, you can uh, distribute those savings in, in different ways. There, there are different, uh, uh, say, revenue generation tools uh, that, that you can employ. Uh, but I think the bottom line is that the, the PBO report shows unequivocally uh, that, that, that there there really is no downside uh, to a universal single payer pharmacare program, unless uh, you're a drug company or an insurer.
1: So let me, let me poke a hole in that or attempt to poke a hole in that a little bit. Um, Isn't one of the downsides in terms of research and development of new drugs and particularly drugs that impact What are they? Orphan diseases or orphan, um, which are often the super expensive drugs because there's such a small patient base Mm -hmm. that they have to go through, you know, the conventional testing process, which costs a lot of money. Millions upon millions of dollars. And then there needs to be a high markup on the end of that to cover costs and to make it profitable and sort of to incentivize companies to go through this entire process,
2: yeah, but I, I'd argue that that's actually been based on a bit of a misconception. So it was, I believe, in the late '80s, uh, when when uh, the, the pharmaceutical lobby was lobbying, I believe, I believe the Mulroney government uh, to to extend the uh, the patent life of drugs. Uh, and their argument was that it was necessary uh, to, to give them the, this longer period of, of monopoly ownership so that uh, they, they'd have the incentive to, to invest in R&D. And I believe they promised uh, a 10% uh, R&D to, to profit ratio, uh, and, and they've, they've never kept their word on that. Uh, in fact, Canada has a lower R&D to, 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 to spending ratio uh, than I think every other OECD country, uh, which means that, that we're spending more and getting less uh, research and development funding. And so I, I think no matter how you look at it, uh, Canada's getting a bad deal from the drug companies. And if, if the argument is that if we're going to take a stronger position at the bargaining table with, with the drug companies, that that will result in in lower, lower R&D investment, I, I'd say that's just not borne out by any of the other developed countries that that, that are getting more for for less yeah
0: and in a sense we can also like and you know just in a purely hard-nosed sense we can pre-write off countries that have well like very high rd spending because I mean, they're I mean, going to register the patents in canada anyway
1: but so one of the thing yeah this is where it gets a little more complicated in my mind is the free rider with the united states example yeah. is that one of the problems um, is that if the United States is the only jurisdiction that does not have national uh, pharmacare, yeah. then they are obviously going to be paying much higher prices than everyone else. Yeah. And so, I, I mean, I think there, I think you're understanding a little bit the impacts of everyone being on national pharmacare sure. because there is... I, I mean, the pharmaceutical industry is very complex, and yes. certainly you've seen Valiant and some of the other ones um, where they dropped R&D and they just jacked up prices yeah. on, uh, whose pharma bro? Shkreli and yeah. whatever, uh, his company was. Yeah, it was, was I it don't better. remember the name of the company, but yes. Uh, but one of like this this is why pharma comes up in free trade agreements yeah. time and time again because it's a huge industry.
0: Yeah, it's the intellectual property angle of it especially. Yeah, yeah, there's
1: the intellectual property angle and there's where you want investment and yeah. in research and development to be taking
0: place. I mean, ultimately, like for me, like I think fundamentally, like the whole model is pretty flawed in the sense that we rely on this closed loop of investment dollars going to R and D, going to manufacturing, going to profits, where. I mean it would make as much sense to publicly fund pharmaceutical research and sell at cost or lower and make up the sort of loss through that for medically necessary drugs and make up the loss for that in other parts of an open economic system like i think part of the category error in this is thinking about like we have to treat pharma as a discrete closed loop that has no outputs or inputs from anywhere else in the sort of like broader economy and like that means that you don't have pharmaceutical companies making shit tons of money, and I'm okay with that. Uh, but if that's a political question at that point.
1: I'm shriveling my face at that a little bit. For yes, you are. <laughs> two reasons: because one, we have the institution the you know, intellectual property currently sitting with all yes. of these companies, uh, so it's hard for the government to just pick up and do that now. I mean, maybe a hundred years ago that could have been a uh, a better idea uh, than it is today. And the second reason. No, and this would really require the U.S. doing it first, basically. Is the tolerance of risk in government. Yeah. Um, that with industry doing this, the risk tolerance is all related to the investors and yeah. how money flows is, sure. of course, an investment-based decision. But when you have government doing it, I think in pharmaceutical industry, it can very quickly become yeah. a money sink in terms of... Well, what I mean, like, your the research NHS, dollars are producing. The NHS is a money sink, but
0: people like the NHS, right? Like, it's medically necessary, like, public interest kinds of things that people like having and receiving. So, like, it, it's just people don't hate yeah. this. Yes, but, it,
1: it, but like, the Solyndra model of, like, government invest 500... That is precisely the opposite, though. Or that was but, like... Yes, 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 yes. yes. <laughs> but in, in terms of that it was a private company, but, yeah. I mean, just imagine the opqs coming out that say uh and government what money did you sink into developing drugs that did absolutely Yeah, but i mean like at
0: some point it's like if you're willing, i think like if you have the political conversation you take that on i think it comes with the understanding that not every scientific experiment is going to result in like a brilliant success right and it's
2: yeah and i'd argue as well that we're saying if we're saying that inflated drug costs are worth the price because it results in in a level of r and d and I point out that it's a pretty low relative level of R and D, but but that it's worth it because we get that R and D funding. I'd say that in doing so, you're accepting the consequence that that, that millions of people don't act, get the option to access uh, drugs on a consistent basis, and the PBO estimates that we could say four Two billion dollars a year annually, and that's based on very conservative uh, uh, assumptions. Some uh, some of, some of the, uh, the the peer-reviewed papers that have been published on this say is as high as seven to to I think ten billion dollars a year. So, do we really believe that that uh, the, the the current uh, the current regime is giving us? Uh, That additional value every year in R&D, and there's no justification for that. Certainly not one that that justifies the inequities of of the current system.
1: Let's leave it there because we're at an hour. Uh, Very briefly, do you want to touch on some sort of the upcoming work of the committee and some of sort of the periphery things going on on HESA?
2: Sure. So uh, we're we're uh, we've uh, begun the process of reviewing uh, a Senate-initiated bill to uh, to restrict uh, the marketing of unhealthy food uh, to young people. Uh, So there's uh, there's a bit of controversy around this one because uh, it's based on the Quebec model, uh, which uh, which goes up to age 13, I believe, Mm -hmm. in Quebec. Uh, But the senator has amended her bill to uh, to go up to the age of 17, uh, which which has gotten a fair amount of of interest. Lob-
0: lobbied against that, but who are you guys gonna get? Uh, the the Tricks Rabbit and the uh, l- yeah. Lucky Charms Leprechaun to uh, show up at committee to lobby against
2: this? <laughs> well, yeah, all, all our favorite candy companies. Captain are Crunch, up and... you know, he's a veteran.
0: He's it's
1: gonna be tough going and against. And that they started kinda... sending Reese's pieces to your <laughs> office. Like, hey, hey. You like these, right? Definitely, occasionally got. Envelopes with candy in them from like the Convenience Store yeah. Association of Canada or like some of those. On the ones. on the bright
0: side, I think you have a really good like. If they send um, the the cuckoo for cocoa puffs bird, <laughs> I think you're gonna be okay. That guy seems <laughs> like he's just gonna fly <laughs> off the handle.
1: One <laughs> of just to give my fun fact on this one, what I uh, on this area that I thought was really interesting was that apparently Netflix has dramatically decreased the uptake of Netflix for kid shows, marketing to children because. Kids aren't watching YTV anymore and having those five-minute commercial breaks. That they're avoiding something like I think it was like eight hours of commercials a month because they're watching Netflix and Netflix does have ads in the same way. Oh hmm. uh, yeah,
2: no. And, and uh, th- this did come up in uh, in the the committee's deliberations last week, where we heard that that in in some ways it's a more challenging media environment to regulate because. Uh, the television model was, was was much more one directional, much right. much more obvious. Uh, what was a commercial and what wasn't? Uh, yeah,
1: like ads targeting on Google to kids' websites yeah, or integration in games. Well, there's a big Crazy. there's a big yeah. suit in the U S. right now about Google advertising to
0: children and like building advertising profiles of children without their consent, which is against like a like privacy protection law targeted specifically at children. Uh, that is, in effect, in the U.S. So, once again, big tech just kind of, like, doing stuff it wants to your, without your really best, thinking about the law. My best friend. My best friends. <laughs> so, uh, that'll probably do it for us this week. Uh, we're at over an hour. Uh, we'll do a quick beer review. We had uh, Dominion Cities, Canada
1: goes. What did you guys think? I thought that it was fairly good, and I would like to be able to purchase it in uh, <laughs> any province in Canada. Uh, unfortunately, the Supreme Court is... Frustratingly, yes, not your friend on that. <sighs> the worst. Peter, your thoughts?
2: I think uh, well, it was it was a tasty, uh, tasty beer, but anything would have tasted uh, amazing on the first sunny day of the year. That and, is uh, uh, well. We'll see you a year from now. Maybe uh, we'll be back with uh, with, with another <laughs> another kind of review. Goes. I
0: actually was kind of underwhelmed, to be honest. I don't think it's as good as the Prophets and Nomads from Collective Arts. It's not, uh, which is unfortunate. Dominion City do better. I love you guys, but this is not your best
1: work. So the word goes comes from Gosler. Uh, which is gossler Germany. Okay. And if I'm not mistaken, Goes was actually basically a long dead recipe until about five years ago. Yeah, they've really come out of the, the woodwork. They're good. They're they're good beers. They're, they're made with nice salt, and salt and coriander. Coriander, so and it was like an old German recipe yeah. of beer that had been dead for decades, almost, and a brewery in the United States revived it.
0: Yeah, if you if you like made it with corn, you'd basically just have like a, a chip, like some pico <laughs> de gallo, like have a. <laughs> Anyway, that'll do it for us this week. Thanks, everyone, for listening. You can follow us on Twitter at ShortPantsPod. uh, And otherwise, we will see you next week. Bye-bye.